They say that experience is the best teacher, and the best way to learn from experience is to learn from others who have already found success. For this season of the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast, Michael has lined up a great group of successful people who will share their stories of how they got started and some powerful lessons from their accomplishments. He'll also be introducing you to people who are just starting on their entrepreneurship journey to share what they've learned so far. Success is not just about money, and we'll meet some people who have been successful in very unique ways. Entrepreneurship is an exciting journey, and we're glad to be along for the ride with you. Here's your host, the guy who knows a guy, Michael Whitehouse. Hello, I am Michael Whitehouse, and this is the Guy Who Knows the Guy podcast. We have a fantastic guest with us today. It is Susan Cushman. She is the, she is the author of John and Mary Margaret uh, and has quite a story to share with us. So, Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Great to be here. Great to have you. So my first question, as always, what makes you awesome? What a disarming question. I'm glad I had a 30-second warning on that one. Okay. <laughs> so if, if I must say I'm awesome, what makes me awesome is I turned 70 in March, and I am a cancer survivor for mm. 20 years. I am a grandmother, and I have published seven books in the last five years. And I'm living my best life, and I uh, think this may be my best decade. Well, that is fantastic, and Thank yeah, I I would not have guessed seventy. So, so you're you're doing well. Must be clean living. <laughs> no, well, whatever. Or really unclean living, but either way, it's working well for you. Um, so, share a bit about your story. It sounds like you've gotten to a good place um, here in your in your eighth decade. Um, so, tell us a bit about how you've gotten to where you are. Right. Well, I started out um, writing es essays and had a bunch of them published. And then I wrote a memoir, Tangles and Plaques, A Mother and Daughter Face Alzheimer's, about my mother who passed from Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's keeps appearing. It appeared in, of course, that memoir. It appeared in a short story collection, and it appears again in John and Mary Margaret. Unfortunately, it'll always be uh, timeless. Maybe not forever, maybe not. But um, in 2019, I published a group of short stories called Friends of the Library. I visited, I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. I live in Memphis. I visited 10 small town libraries to the Friends of the Library groups on a little book tour for my first novel, Cherry Bomb. And as I went into each town, I researched the town's history. Even though I had grown up in Jackson, Mississippi, and gone to school at Ole Miss in Oxford, Mississippi, I had never visited most of these other small towns with hmm. cool names like West Point, Euporia, Aberdeen, Pontotoc. There's some famous people from some of those towns. They have historic uh, places where jazz and blues and literary uh, heroes came from. So I decided to write a short story about each of those visits. I created a um, fictional author named Adele, and I had had her go on the visit. And in each of the small towns, she met people who had, who had um, experienced some trauma, everything from sexual abuse to cancer, to Alzheimer's, to homelessness. And most of those things have touched my life too. But one of the stories was about a biracial couple named John and Mary Margaret, who um, met and fell in love on the Ole Miss campus in 1966. Well, that was a favorite story in the collection. And more than one reader contacted me and said, we want more about John and Mary Margaret. Why don't you turn that into a novel? 
So I contacted Kohler Books, who had published Friends of the Library, and told them about this. And they said, oh, yeah, go for it. So last spring, while I was hunkered down before I had a vaccine for COVID, um, I wrote John and Mary Margaret. And one reason that it was timely to write it then was because of what was going on in our nation uh, with the racial injustice mm -hmm. protests. I have a black son-in-law. I have mixed race granddaughters. This is an issue that I care deeply about. I would have gone out in the streets of Memphis and joined the protest had I not been 70 years old with no vaccine. <laughs> and uh, so my husband said, I, I was so frustrated. He says, why are you frustrated? You're a writer. You have a voice. Write this story. Mm. That's how you can use your voice. And uh, duh, right? And so I wrote John and Mary Margaret pretty much during the spring and summer of 2020, and it was published on June 8th, just just this summer. Uh, so I'm I'm really excited about it. That's that's great. I love the story of how that came about and kind of using your voice in that way. So how did you get started as a writer? Well, how far do you want me to go back? Let's uh, see. Beginning, uh, like when you first got published, what? Oh, what first, beginning well, of your road. I don't know if you count the literary journal in my junior high school in Jackson, Mississippi, <laughs> or the newspaper staff at my high school there, because I thought I wanted to be a journalist early on. That was kind of what I thought I wanted to do. And so I, I kind of stuck with nonfiction and I, I did some freelance writing. My first thing that was published between the pages of a book was in 2012, and it was an essay in a collection put out by the University of Alabama called Circling Faith, Southern Women on Spirituality. And I'm a convert to Eastern Orthodoxy, and I paint Byzantine icons, even though I grew up Presbyterian in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So I had a different story to add to that. I've been published in five anthologies as far as essays, and I love the essay as a genre. And then Memoir was my first book. So, but when I decided to, to write fiction, Cherry Bomb was my first novel. It came out in 2019 and it started as a memoir because I was scared of fiction. I thought that's too hard. You know, you have to make stuff up, <laughs> which means it's really fun once you get the hang of it, you know. So I used a lot of things from my own life that would have been in that memoir I didn't publish to write Cherry Bomb, which is about a little girl who escapes from a religious cult in rural Georgia in the 70s, throws up graffiti as a cry for help, gets discovered by a famous abstract expressionist painter, uh, and gets to study uh, at the Savannah College of Art and Design, mm. ends up going to an Orthodox monastery to learn to paint icons. There's a weeping icons. There's a mystery. She and the nun and her and the um, artists have something in common. So that was my, my first novel. And it was so much fun writing fiction that I, I knew I would do it again, uh, with, which I did with the short stories and again with John and Mary Margaret. So, but I started with nonfiction and I still love essays, Michael. I will always return to the essay. Um, yeah, so, so it sounds like a, a few years passed between your high school newspaper and uh, and getting published in there. Um, so, so, you know, what led you to be able to, cause, cause you kind of describe it. So to give you a little, little background, uh, you know, the, a lot of our audience are people who are just getting started with whatever they're doing. Um, and okay. they may be doing it young or they may be, it may be their third, fourth or fifth act. Um, but a lot of people will come to something and say, Oh, I don't have the background. I don't have the connections. I don't have the resources. So I was like to go back to the beginning of your story 
where you didn't have all the, I mean, assuming that someone didn't call you up and say, hey, your brother-in-law tells me you're a good author, I'm going to publish you. <laughs> um, so assuming you didn't already have everything handed to you, um, yeah. kind of going back to the beginning when you, um, when you were relatively unknown, how did you make that leap into being published? That's a really great question. And I think for people out there that are starting in their 20s or 30s, maybe, there, there are a couple of different paths you can go. Of course, I didn't go the MFA path. Mm -hmm. I didn't get published in my 30s. I think to be successful on that route, you have to either have a really great story to tell or some really great talent because you've not lived decades mm -hmm. of life. You don't have decades of life experience. But some really great authors have published in their 20s and 30s successfully. For me, I was living that life. You know, I was a stay-at-home mom raising mm -hmm. three adopted kids, two from South Korea and one from Mississippi. My husband had a busy career, so I was holding down the fort and just doing things like newsletters, you know, the church newsletter or a <laughs> newsletter for corporations, those sort of things. But I began building a network too. You know, I began reaching out and getting my name places and building a resume so that eventually when I wanted, was ready to write something longer, I would have a little bit of a platform. The term building a platform is really important um, when you're starting out. So by the time I published my first book, I had over a dozen essays published in other places and some other experience. Also writing workshops are really important and writing conferences. And after attending several, I began to help direct several. And I directed on the Ole Miss campus, uh, the creative nonfiction conferences in the early 2000s. And I can't know, 2013 and, and 11, mm -hmm. I think it was, and one in Memphis, kind of as a way to give back. Because going to writing workshops and conferences is a great way to get your work critiqued. And a lot of these workshops use the same method that that is used in an MFA program. Mm. So your manuscript gets, here's a verb, workshopped mm -hmm. by the other students and the faculty. And that was key for me. I went seven summers in a row to the Yachtna Batafa Summer Writers Workshop in Oxford, Mississippi, led by the MFA faculty there. And that's really where I cut my teeth. That's where early chapters of some of my books were critiqued, craft talks were given, but it was also where I began to meet authors. Because by the time you have a book published, you know the blurbs that you see on mm -hmm. the back of books and inside books by other authors? Well, unless you know some, you're not going to be able to find anybody to write those blurbs. So that's not the only reason for making friends along the way, but it's part of networking that matters. So that for each of my books, I've had six or eight or ten authors willing to read the book and write a blurb because I made those friendships. You know, I networked mm -hmm. along the way. Also, supporting other people who are at your, at your level. Get in a critique group. Meet with a critique group regularly and critique each other's work. Support each other. Cheer each other on because writing is lonely. Mm -hmm. You're sitting here by yourself <clears throat> for hours every day you know, putting the, the words on the page. So be sure and support others who are where you are. Uh, and I've had a ton of support from other writing communities, uh, which, which is really helpful. Writing groups and book clubs. Mm -hmm. I think book clubs are great to, to be in and to speak to as a writer. It goes both ways. That's great. Yeah, I, of course, a lot of you mentioned networking because networking is my, my main business, a networking coach. And, and it's all about, uh, you know, it's, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But it's also 
that you can go meet people. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I don't have a network. So, you know, oh, you got that job because you knew somebody. Well, yeah, of course I did. Go meet some people. Exactly. <laughs> and, and when you say, you know, go join, go where the people, go fish where the fish are. You want to exactly. meet writers, go to writing workshops, go to writing conferences. And I especially like what you said about uh, helping direct the writing conferences. You yes. know, volunteer your time, volunteer your efforts and get into that position because then everyone has to meet you. Right. <laughs> and it's a way to pay it forward to mm-hmm. you know, my most favorite recent activity was last year. I led a creative writing group at a senior living facility here oh, in Memphis. Nice. There were 20 participants, ages 72 to 93. Some of them were really excellent writers. A lot were writing their memoirs, mm-hmm. but some were writing fiction. And we met monthly. And then when COVID shut down our in-person, we continued to meet by Zoom. Good. And this was just a way for me to give back, uh, especially since my mother spent the last eight years of her life in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And I wish that more creative things had been offered, mm-hmm. especially for her in assisted living. This is an independent senior living facility that, in fact, I'm speaking to their book club tomorrow, oh, good. the book baggers. But um, yeah, that's, and that's not, I gain nothing in my career from doing that. That's just a way of giving back and just a real joy. Uh, to me to to be with those people who have lived lives some of them 20 years more than me mm-hmm. yeah but i'm sure you learn a lot from them as well i do yeah, absolutely yeah yeah like that's like i i do not get rich doing this podcast but i get to meet a tremendous array of people who i might not otherwise get to connect with because i do the podcast and that's right. that's the real value of it is is right. making those connections and learning learning from people i i, I launched this this third season um, focusing on like how people got started because I realized I know all these people and I'm in my business, you know, kind of at the, the launch stage of the career. As I know all these people who have succeeded, why don't I ask them what they did? There you go. And I might as well record it and share it with an audience so that they can learn what, you know, so it's not just for me, but I can share it with others as well. Uh, so it's, it can be a really powerful thing to, to meet people and hear their stories. And, you know, they've, they've been, especially with the audience, with, with, with the demographic you're talking to, the senior, yeah, they've, they've, they've been through a bit. They have. They've lived all over the world. I mean, they have mm-hmm. fascinating stories. I loved it. Um, yeah. um, and as a writer, I, I imagine that some of those stories might find their way into your, into your stories. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 If you want to be immortalized, just talk to writers. Exactly. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, you'll be immortalized. Like those T-shirts you say, be careful, you'll end up in my novel. Yep. <laughs> if I like you, you'll be a hero. If I don't like you, I still need some villains. Right. Uh, absolutely. Um, yes. So, so what, what do you find to be the most uh, fulfilling part of writing? Oh, wow. You know, I love research. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's two really key important things uh, for any writer. One is the old adage, write what you know. Mm-hmm. And then additional to that is research, meaning research for what you don't know, but also for what you think you know. Mm. Be sure that you get it right. Uh, Like in John and Mary Margaret, this book covers 50 years of civil rights history in Mississippi and Memphis. Well, yes, I lived it, but uh, I lived it as, guess what, a white woman. 
<laughs> not a black man. And uh, so since one of my protagonists is a black man, it was really important to me to do a lot of research. I had two black authors who were early readers who read early drafts and gave me incredible feedback. I learned so much from both of them mm -hmm. uh, to, to be accurate, to be culturally appropriate with the language, um, to get the facts right. You know, plus I knew some Memphis lawyers and uh, some other, uh, my sorority sisters, because there's two scenes that are set in the sorority house at Ole Miss. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get that. I mean, you talk about different cultures. A black kid, a black boy growing up fairly poor in Memphis, a white girl growing up in that proverbial white bubble in Jackson, Mississippi, and they fall in love. And it wasn't welcomed. You know, their relationship yep. was not welcomed in 1966. John got beat up. You know, um, it, it, it did not go well at that point in their life. Mm -hmm. And um, so, I, you know, I had to work hard to get the details right, which I hope I did. Recently, I had the joy of meeting with a book club here in Memphis. First time I've ever met with a men's book club because mm -hmm. every book club I've ever met with has been women. And <laughs> these were black men. The head of it works at a library that was a, quote, Negro library branch in Memphis mm -hmm. years ago. So this group of men read John and Mary Margaret. And I was a little bit nervous because this was going to be, I mean, as an audience I really wanted, but I was afraid of what they were going to say. Mm -hmm. And um, they said I nailed it. I mean, I was so encouraged. You know, the, the one criticism that one of them gave me made perfect sense. Uh, he wished that I had named the school in Memphis that John grew up in and his father coached football there. And I just had a generic school. I didn't name it. Whereas I did name the white school uh, that Mary Margaret ends up teaching him. And, and he said, it, it didn't seem balanced that you named this white school and didn't name the black school. And the reason I did that is I didn't have enough knowledge. Maybe I should have researched further. <laughs> Make sure I, I put him in the right neighborhood, in the right school growing up there. So instead of messing that up, I just didn't name it. But after that little critique and an hour long Zoom meeting, because they were not meeting in person, mm -hmm. the same guy who was criticizing said, well, I have to tell you, you nailed it. So um, that felt great. And I was really yes. glad. Yep. Yeah. Now, so did you say that John Mary was based on, uh, or John Mary Margaret was based on the stories you encountered when you were doing your library tour? You know, this one did not. Um, I just completely made this one up. You okay. know, I had Adele visit uh, a, a library book club where John and Mary Margaret showed up. And I don't know why that came into my mind to have a biracial couple be there. And they end up telling Adele their story. Mm -hmm. So I kept her on as a narrator for the book, John and Mary Margaret, and mm -hmm. they, they're telling her their story. Uh, they, I use that as a literary device, right, right. you know, throughout the book. And they're, they're telling her their story. That's so I didn't story. really meet anybody. People are saying who inspired it. And I don't, I have, you know, I have no idea. It just came into my imagination. Now, once they got inspired, then John was inspired further by two real people. There, there's two people who uh, were at Ole Miss in the 60s, two black men, Don Cole and Kenneth Mayfield. And they are, they are two of this group that are known as Ole Miss Eight. And uh, they were, uh, they instigated a protest during an Up With People concert. Do you remember the group Up With People? They were, anyway, it was a concert at Fulton Chapel and 60 black kids protested and were arrested. Some of them were 
suspended, expelled, and not allowed to get their degrees, including Don Cole, who went elsewhere for his degree, came back to Ole Miss and taught there for decades. He just retired last year. Wow. And so he and another student named Kenneth Mayfield together as a composite, my character, John, came from them. You know, he's studying law. He wants to be a judge and, and help the civil rights. He wants to go back to Memphis and help civil rights issues there. So they're based on real people. Mary Margaret is based a whole lot on me. From Jackson, Mississippi, pledged Tri-Delta at Ole Miss in the 60s, you know, but from a young age was questioning the status quo of, of, of how things were with race issues. And, um, and I have her questioning that in ways that I wish I had had the opportunity because she lives in the neighborhood with Eudora Welty. And she ends up having a visit, two visits with her, one when she's 14 and one when she's 18. And Eudora Welty teaches her uh, about race situations in their conversations. And she had just written that story in The New Yorker after um, Medgar Evers was assassinated. And mm -hmm. so those talks early on began Mary Margaret's awakening. I had a little bit of a leaning toward an awakening, leaning into one. Growing up, um, we had uh, a black maid named Lily Bell, which is the Mary Margaret's maid in the book. And I was always uncomfortable with the fact that she called me and my brother, Miss Susan and Mr. Mike. And she called my mother, Mrs. Johnson, but we called her Lily Bell. And I always felt like it was disrespectful. I didn't understand it as a child, you know. And then in the 60s, when I was in high school and um, a lot really started happening with race protests and all that, I became more aware, but I didn't get out of my bubble. Mm. I still lived in that bubble. I just missed it at my high school. Um, and I graduated in 69 in Jackson, Mississippi. In 70, halfway through the year, is when the lines were drawn and busing started and people were shipped all over to different schools, teachers and students, for forced um, integration. And see, I was already a freshman at Ole Miss. So I missed that. My high school of 1,200 maybe had a dozen black kids. Wow. So it was wow. the very next. So I just missed that experience. So, you know, my awakening really came into a bigger bloom really last year, um, not only because of everything that was going on in the country, but also because of probably one of the most important books I've ever read, which is Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. You know, Isabel Wilkerson uh, won what the National Book Prize 10 years earlier for The Warmth of Other Sons, which was about the great migration of African-Americans to Chicago. So this cast, C-A-S-T-E, mm -hmm. is about the caste system in India, racial uh, problems in United States and Nazi Germany. And you would think, ooh, she put those three together. You read that book and it, it, it will change the way you, you see things and understand things. And it really did for me. I, I can imagine. I, I, I like what you said about how you used, kind of used the book as a vehicle to do the things you wish you'd done and to, <laughs> to learn the things and take action. Because you know, as, as your, your husband said, you know, you're an author, you have a voice. Right. But, you know, people often ask, like, what would you change if you could go back or how would you change your life? And so as the author, you can make your character have those conversations and do those things and, and sort of fulfill that and, and hopefully create that experience for others as they read it. 
you know, hopefully someone else reads the story and says, wow, I didn't realize, is this really, is that a thing? Right. They, they start doing some research and they create that experience for them. And using fiction is, um, is, is more subtle. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't want the book to be preachy or angry at all. You know, it's a love story. And um, I have a lot of quotes, quotes at the beginning of each chapter. And one of my quotes by Eudora Welty kind of talk, kind of says a little bit about why I wrote the book. It's short. I'll read it. Great fiction shows us not how to conduct our behavior, but how to feel. Eventually, it may show us how to face our feelings and face our actions and to have new inklings about what they mean. A good novel of any year can initiate us into our own new experience. Absolutely. That's a lot about what, I, what my hopes are for John and Mary Margaret and the effect it will have on readers. That's fantastic. Yep. Yeah, one thing I've always believed is that is sort of all the wisdom of the universe is in every piece of it. So, you know, if you read any piece of, of writing deeply enough, then you'll find the whole human experience in it. Right. And, and so, you know, you can use fiction in that way to, to bring people to awareness on these different issues and different things I might not think about and, and create that as, as cast uh, did for you and, right. and as hopefully your book does for others. Right. And, uh, and so what, what is, what is the thing you, you would most hope that someone would take away from reading John and Mary Margaret? I was looking for a quote from William Faulkner in the book because Mm -hmm. I thought you might ask that. And here it is. This is William Faulkner. Never be afraid to raise your voice for honesty and truth and compassion against injustice and lying and greed. If people all over the world would do this, it would change the earth. Love it. And that's, you know, there's my fellow Mississippian William Faulkner telling what I'm feeling for sure. You know, and again, by writing it as a love story, um, you know, I hoped that that would kind of bring in a different audience than a nonfiction book. That, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, in the back of the book, I have references to a lot of other books that um, I researched. So hopefully if people want to read more. They can go and find them. Yep. Yeah. It's all that's heavy in a love story. It's not because some people are like, oh, I don't want to read a history of civil rights. That just sounds depressing. Like, yeah, I want to know it. But oh. I don't right. know, but right. your story, like this is a love story. It's uplifting. It's that, you know, I assume it has positive, uplifting love story aspects in addition to the, the challenges. It does. It absolutely yeah. does. And, and of course, you know, the story you need, there always has to be some sort of antagonists and challenges and yours is, I, I assume, you know, racism and. and yeah, it has, it, has, um, it has two major antagonists. And of course uh, the racial climate is, is one of them. And then later in, in many years later, um, Alzheimer's and Lewy body disorder, which is mm. a type of dementia, are both involved. And um, I have a, one of my best friends died from Lewy body dementia just two years ago. And then oh. my mother died from Alzheimer's. So I bring those issues in. So, you know, just when maybe you think things are going to be getting better with the race issues, then those come in later. So that's that second. Uh, and I uh, uh, can't think of the word I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Conflict. That's the yep. second conflict that hits. Oh, in wow. the book. Yeah. But it does have a good ending. Good. And, um, I won't, I'm not going to spoil what happens with John and Mary Margaret, but I will say this, that when I was telling you about the protest and the old Miss Eight, that happened in February of 1970. 50 years later, in February of 2000, there was a reunion on the Ole Miss campus for the Ole Miss Eight and, and others who had been arrested. 
And um, one of the women who had completed everything she needed for her diploma and was denied it 50 years earlier, was given her diploma posthumously, not to know she was still living, but 50 years later, mm-hmm. which is bittersweet. And um, I, I based one of my characters named Diane in the book on her. Wow. And um, so, you know, I wish I had known that reunion was happening. It happened in February of 2020. And I started writing my book in about May of 2020. <laughs> so what I did was I have an epilogue that, mm-hmm. that, that talks about that reunion. Uh, so, but, you know, takes it from the love story back to the historical element. Yeah, that's, that's great. Well, it's been, it's been so great to learn about, you know, this book and your story and, and how you came, um, you know, came to write it and, and how your, your uh, characters insisted they be written. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard many authors tell me like, you know, people say, well, why'd you make the character do this? But like, what do you make? The character did that. What choice did I have? Exactly. <laughs> characters told me where they're doing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love learning your story. Are there any, uh, any final thoughts you'd like to share with the audience before we part ways? Um, well, to the readers out there, please get John and Mary Margaret wherever books are sold and, mm-hmm. and read it. And to those writing at whatever stage you're at, um, believe in yourself. Your voice has power. Mm. Adeline Lingle, uh, one of my favorite authors, pointed out, you know, we do have power. So um, just write. Just do it. Yep. Just do it. Love that. That's a great message to leave with. So for all you writers out there, just do it. And if you're not a writer, get reading. And definitely check out John and Mary Margaret, available, uh, of course, on Amazon and also at your local bookstores, which are always a good place to support. So thank you, Susan, for being on the show. It's been great. Thanks, Michael. I enjoyed it. This has been the Guy Who Knows a Guy podcast with your host, Michael Whitehouse. This great theme song is by Patrick Howard. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast. Find the full archive of all episodes at guywhoknowsaguy.com slash podcast. Check out my other podcast, Morning Motivation. It's a daily podcast of two to five minutes with a powerful hit of motivation and inspiration to get your day started. Morningmotivation.fun or search for Morning Motivation wherever you listen to podcasts. Join the community online in the Morning Motivation Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Morning Motivation Podcast. JV Connect is coming up quick, December 12th and 13th. If you are looking for a networking event where you can meet people who aren't looking to just pitch you or take, but actually want to collaborate, build strategic partnerships, joint ventures, maybe even find some mentors, some coaches, people to support you, accountability partners, who knows? If you're looking for good people in an environment that's not stressful, but is set up to give you a lot of great connections in an efficient amount of time, check out JV Connect, jv-connect.com. Dot com. That's jv-connect.com, December 12th and 13th, 2023. We'll see you there.